Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you. I didn't think this time was ever going to come. I have been so anxious to get to this passage on Sunday morning all week long. It's been driving me crazy. So please buckle your seatbelts. Make sure that your tray table is in its upright and locked position. We've got a lot to cover this morning, and all of it's important, all right? So here we go. We are in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the story of, it's got multiple layers, but Daniel is the story of God's working in a culture that has abandoned any pretense of following him. And it is a look into the future of why these issues are so important. There is coming a day when you and I are going to stand before the creator of the universe, the one in whose image we have been designed. And we will give account for what we did with truth before him. And there'll be no second chances. There'll be no do-overs. You can't press a reset button. At that moment, you will stand and give account <clears throat> for what you did with truth. This is important stuff. Living in Babylon is a difficult task. Thriving in Babylon is even more challenging, and yet that is the mission that God has assigned to those who have built their life and put their trust in truth. This was the job that Daniel faced. This was the job that the three Hebrew boys faced, and we can do it in this generation as well. So two weeks ago, Ben began by helping us understand why Babylon was such a significant culture, why the capital city of Babylon was such an important place. It was a place of art and science and music and education and, and power and industry and communication and travel and, and research and all of these things. It was one of the central cities of the world. Its impact is still felt by us today in classrooms and in textbooks. Things that were uncovered there can be seen in architecture and have been recorded in great literature. It was an amazing, amazing civilization, and yet it was completely decadent. It was completely built on a false and pagan concept. It's important to note a few things about Babylon in that it is the city of Babel. We all remember the story of the Tower of Babel. And when the Tower of Babel was getting ready to be built, if you go back to Genesis and you look at that, you'll remember this, that they said, we are going to build something that makes a name for ourselves. This was the goal of Babylon. Let's make a name for ourselves. And there are times when we look at that and say, well, that sounds pretty good. I want to be known, I want to be an influencer, I want to be somebody that people look to, and yet that stands in contrast to how God has operated. Do you remember what God said to Abraham whenever he was getting ready to bless him and future generations? God's promise to Abraham is, I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great land. I will have your name be known. And folks, that is the same uh, choice, the same dichotomy of, of values that influence us to this day. Because when you say, I will, I will, I will make a name for myself, we are echoing the words of Satan himself who said, I will be as God. I will sit on the seat of authority. I will have all answer to me. And instead, God put him down, and God has said to us ever since, I am God and there is none else. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, 
for I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 22. So when you look at the difference in philosophy, it comes down to this day when we have to ask ourselves, are we the center of truth? Are we the center of decision-making? Are we the center of our priorities? Are we the center of our agenda? Are we here to make a great name of ourselves? Or are we here to fulfill God's plan, God's design, God's intention and purpose? And how you view that will very much determine what kind of values you have, how you look at truth, how you engage with people, and how you navigate your life. So we've come to this point where we've got Daniel and three men that we commonly know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know, somebody said something to me last week after I got done preaching. He said, if, if, if the three guys were still alive today, which names do you think that they would prefer to be called? And when I stopped and thought about that, you know, I'd want to be called by my real name. I'd want to be called by the name that reflects my values and my God and, 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 and how I make decisions. And yet, ironically, we still remember uh, uh, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah by their pagan names, by the names that they were given. By that. And I, I'm, I've kind of decided that in my own and it's taken me a while to kind of reprogram myself after you know, a long time of, of calling them Shadrach, Meshach, and Ego, that I want to call them by their authentic names. I want to call them by their Hebrew names, the names that lift up God. I think that in some way honors their legacy and their courage. But last week we looked at their situation. They had been ripped out of their parents' arms. They had been ripped away from their country, their culture, their language, and they had been enrolled in the Babylonian university that was supplied there by Nebuchadnezzar. And so he took the best of the best. He took the elites. He took the children of kings and, and icons of industry and, and well-educated boys. And he brought them to his, his, his complex, his, his uh, palace complex. And it was there that he would put them in about a three-year-long university of Babylonian thought and culture. And in doing so, he changed their names. He was going to change their language. They had to learn the common language. He changed their identity. He was changing everything in their life. As we looked at last week, about a, I'm, I'm convinced at a 90 plus percent rate that in the process of doing this, he castrated them. They were eunuchs. And you say, why would they have done that? Because he needed them to be passive. He needed them not to be a threat to his authority, but instead he needed them to be yes men. These were people that would be turned into, into officials and leaders and influencers all around the world uh, and his empire. Some would go back home, some would go to other countries, but he needed them not to be a threat to him. And so he needed them to speak his language, know his values, know his mind, give him input as to how to work with all the different cultures that his kingdom had taken, and he needed them to be passive. He didn't need them to push. He didn't need them to offer their opinion over his opinion. He needed them to be neutered, not just physically, but emotionally, religiously, socially, in every sense of that word. So these four guys are now in this hostile university system, and his goal is to have them assimilate into the Babylonian culture. And in doing so, there was a strategic plan. It was part of taking their name. It was taking their masculinity. It was taking away all of these things and replacing it with a better way, a different way, the Babylonian way. So today we get into this next passage that we just read together a few moments ago. And this is the first time we see that the conflicts of culture are starting to emerge in this passage. And so we see in the first part of verse 8, but Daniel resolved. 
I love what the old King James, how it, how it translated it. But Daniel purposed in his heart. When you resolve something, when you make a decision to stand for something, when you make a decision to resist something, it begins from what you really believe, who you really are. Warren Wiersbe used to say that our actions are a reflection of our beliefs. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me how you act, and then I'll tell you what you really believe because your actions come from belief. And so when Daniel decided this is going to be a problem, this request of the king is going to be a problem, it started from his very core, from his very values, from the very foundation of what he knew to be true and right in his life. And so the Bible says he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So, it's, it's always, I'm always so tempted to get into the weeds real far, and I don't, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but there's just so many layers and so many different things. But you say, well, what is the big deal? Seriously, what is the big deal? Why in the world did he not eat of the king's meat? And why did he not drink the king's wine? Of all the things to argue about, of all the things to resist, why this? And, and there's at least three reasons why Daniel... And eventually, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, why they would have resisted this. And it was, number one, the food would not have been prepared according to the customs and laws of the Jewish culture. Uh, if you've ever been in the home of a Jewish friend, you may have, or if you've ever been to a Jewish restaurant, or if you've ever traveled to Jerusalem or uh, many areas in Israel, there is a set of kosher laws that they keep, how they kill the animal, how they, how they sanitize things, uh, what, the, what ingredients they will use and what they won't use. There's, a, there's a, a, a very clear system that's a part of God's reminder to them and by the way, this isn't a system of right or wrong, and we need to understand that because people get to, they use this and they say, well, you Christians are hypocrites because you don't keep all the dietary laws that were for the Jews. You, you misunderstand, there's different kinds of laws. There's moral law, there's civil law, there's, there's religious law, there's ceremonial law, there's, there's a bunch of different kinds, and they're not all equally applied, but that's, again, another rabbit. Here's what, here's what I want you to get from this. Here, here's, he, here's the issue. For him to abandon this part of who he was meant that he was changing his identity and conforming, and conforming. So that was one thing. The second thing was this. The, the meat that was offered and the wine that was offered to the king was the best. And where did you get the best? From the pagan temples, right? So they had these temples. They offered blood and food sacrifices, they would take them there and they would present them. And you would bring your best because you wanted to please the gods. Remember, they had all of these different gods, particularly the celestial gods that they worshipped. And so people would come and they would offer their sacrifices, their gifts, and they would bring them. So what would happen is at the end of the day, the king could go in, and he, because he considered himself a god, he could go in and take the best of the meat and the best of the wine and the other things and keep it for himself. And so these had been consecrated items that had been given in worship to the pagan gods after whom many of these boys were now named. But this was an offense to them because when they looked at it, what they sensed and what they knew about this food was that this food had been dedicated to a false god that was the antithesis of everything that they believed and valued. There's a third reason that, that, that Daniel didn't participate. And, and it is that, the fact of this, there was an association problem, an association that said by eating the king's meat, I am following his endorsement 
and I choose to be identified with him. This may have been one of the most dangerous reasons for them because this could have been seen as an offense to the king. When the king invites you to do something and you refuse, you better have a pretty good reason because you don't offend the king. And as we go into the passage a little further, you'll see that's where Ashpenaz was really getting nervous. He said, you know, I fear my king. And you're asking me to do something here that could potentially be offensive to him. And that makes me nervous. That, that gives me pause. And, and I'm concerned about that. Because you didn't. But here's what Daniel and the three Hebrew boys were saying. He was, they were saying this. I want to make sure that I'm crystal clear on this issue. That I do not, in, I, I, I do not live under the, the, the religious authority of the king. I do not believe in his moral standards. I do not want to be conformed to his rules and regulations. I'm different. I'm Hebrew. I've been taught better. I know better. And I believe better. I'll not give even tacit endorsement by joining the king in his feast. So there's at least those three areas why they didn't. And I would say this, I think these are important things that we remember. That every action you and I have as a follower of Christ has the potential to send messages and have implications. There have been times when I have been invited to, to, to join um, in, in a religious uh, meeting with people who, you know, like Mormons or, or Hindus or, or um, Buddhists or even Christian denominations that deny the gospel the way the scripture teaches it. And they say, we want to have a community meeting with all the religious leaders in place and standing. And would you please join us? And I always decline. And you say, well, Dan, why would you do that? Are you not for peace? It's not an issue of peace with me. He said, well, don't, don't you want to do that so that you can bring the community together? Yeah, I can bring the community together in various ways and efforts and so forth, but I'm not going to use my faith as part of that agenda. Why? Because I don't want to be standing in a row with a Buddhist priest and, 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 a, and a Hindu uh, imam and a variety of other religions going on and give the impression that they're all equal. That's a problem for me. Now, I've, I've known people to do it, and you know, they can choose those things. I'm just not going to do it. It violates my conscience. You know, t -t Today, we, we all want to get it. The other day, someone said to me, yeah, well, the Mormons are good Christians. Uh, no, they're not. You say, well, oh, how can you say that? That's so offensive. You're going to make something bad. No, 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 no. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they also believe that that, that, uh, that uh, Lucifer is the Son of God, by the way, but if you, believe, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're not of me. All right, So I can't stand in an official capacity as a minister of the, of the gospel of Christ and leave any impression that, oh, you know what, it's, there's all one God and we all just love him. People want to say that all the time about, yeah, Christians, we, we worship the same God as, as the, uh, the Arabs, as, as, as the Muslims. No, we don't. No, we don't. Because i got to guarantee you this, the character of my God and the character of, of the God of Muhammad, two different characters. We can use similar names. We can even trace similar histories. But it stops with the reality of what they teach and what they believe. And we have to be willing, in faith, to have the courage to stand against the lies. You say, well, Dan, you just sound so radical right now. And I just want you to understand, the truth is radical. It is radical. I'm not suggesting that we be unkind. You're not going to have me get out, outside of one of these things with a big sign that says all Muslims are going to hell. not going to do that. By the way, I don't need to do that. Because truth offends, and all you have to do is just speak the truth, and that will take care of it. It does not require me to be offensive. 
Some of us say this, well, Jesus ate with sinners. Yes, he did, privately. He did, privately. But you don't see Jesus breaking bread with the Pharisees, do you? Didn't happen. There's a difference. And we need to have the wisdom and the discernment to stand for truth and to think about it as the opportunities come. So this is what Daniel was doing. And eventually what happened is three other boys joined him. And so we got Hananiah and, and Mishael and Azariah. They're saying, yeah, us too. We got a problem. We don't want to eat this meat. We don't want to drink this wine. And so they went to Ashpenaz, who was the chief over all of them. He himself was a eunuch as well. I think he had some sympathy for these boys. But he said, you know, we've got a problem here. And here's what Daniel said. Let me, let me, let me propose something to you. Let's take a 10-day test, and let's, let's, we'll eat something simple. We'll eat something plain. And basically, it was bean soup and water. He said, we'll take, it, take that. And if after 10 days, we're just dying and not healthy and pale and run out and everything and so forth, then we'll visit this again. But give us 10 days. Give us a shot at this. Ashpenaz was very, very nervous about it. But he said, you know what? I've listened. I'm going to, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. Of course, you know, at the end of the 10 days, they were more fair. They were better health. They were doing just great after them. In, the, in, in between time, people knew who Daniel and, and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were. Already, they started distinguishing themselves in other areas as well. So when you look in verses 17 and 18, he said God was giving them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. Daniel had the ability, the capacity to understand dreams and visions. And so during this time, God was at work in their life. But don't you notice, don't you think that people didn't notice what was going on? Some of you guys are in high school, in middle school right now. You know what one of the most uncomfortable hours of the day is? Lunch hour. You know it's true, isn't it? And you know why it's true? Because you're in the lunchroom, the teachers are grabbing a sandwich, and they're a little ticked off because they got lunchroom duty this month. And, and, you know, every, and you, got the, you got the power table. You know what, that, you know what that's like, right? You got, you got the pretty cheerleaders and the jocks over there. It's quarterback, he decides who gets to sit there. But you got the power table, got the nerd table, geek table, emo table. You know, you got all the different tables, right? And here you stand with your little, little, little tray of tater tots and a hot dog. Well, that was my day. Now you have a meatless burger and broccoli. <laughs> and you're looking for an empty seat. Is there any seat where I can sit and, and, and not get humiliated or teased or somebody do something in my food? And that is the nature of lunchrooms, cafeterias, and in public schools, private schools, Christian schools, you name it, everything except homeschool, and even then your dad can give you an attitude, okay? So the, the reality is lunchtime is just a little, little, little tricky. Can you imagine then for Daniel, and boys are boys, right? Always been this way. So you got Daniel and his three buds. They're sitting down there in their own lunchroom table. They got a nice bowl of piping hot bean soup and water, no ice. And there they're sitting. Can you imagine what others may have said? I mean, guys are guys. I know it had to be the case. Hey, Daniel, what's eating down there? Oh, beans. <laughs> I didn't know you were a musician. You say, really? Did you just say that? Yeah, because I know boys. Right? I know boys. 
You're drinking that water? Look at me, man. I'm drinking the wine. Oh, man, man, my mom would be flipping out right now. Yeah, that's what they were doing. Hey, guys. The teasing began. The joking began. And yet Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah, just put their heads down and did what they knew was the right thing to do. It bounced off of them, it rolled off of them, maybe it hurt, I don't know. But they just did what they had resolved in their hearts to do. They chose to do the right thing and they were willing to pay the price because they really believed this was important. And my question today is, what do you and I believe that's important enough to take a stand on? What is important enough to isolate ourselves from others over? What is important enough for us to speak up about? What is important enough for us to go to people in position of authority and say, I don't see it that way? What in our life is important enough to us and who we are and what we value and where we're going to be someday when we stand before God that we're willing to say enough or I can't or excuse me, what is it? What will it take? Here's the reality. The Babylonian system that exists today is the same system that existed in their day. And there are two responses that they often leave to the people like you and me, if you're a follower of Christ. The first one is this. You must assimilate. The second one is this. If you don't, you're being antagonistic. Those are our choices. Be viewed as antagonistic. Be viewed as an outsider. Be viewed as a troublemaker. Be viewed as someone who's a hater. Be viewed as someone who's not in the norm. Be viewed as the, as, as the person who's going against the stream, and going against the flow and causing problems, or just assimilate. In other words, shut up, sit down, and don't cause me any problems. Am I wrong? This is the world in which we live. But it's not new. It's as old as Babylon. And it's as old as the philosophy that says... This is all about me and power and being known in the world and being number one and having things my way. But the person who decides, who resolves in their heart, who chooses to do the right thing in the midst of opposition, in the midst of, of chaos, in the midst of an agenda, the person that chooses biblically, built on truth, is the person whose names we will eventually remember. If you want real influence, let's talk about Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. We remember their names. We don't remember anybody else's names of all those boys. Those boys lost their identity, lost their masculinity, lost their faith, lost their culture, lost everything else. And we don't even know their names. But the price that these boys were willing to pay etched for them significance throughout the millennia because they choose, chose to act in truth. Conformity and assimilation were the goals. Deconstruction was the process. We're going to take away your name. We're going to take away your identity. You no longer call yourself Hebrew. You're a Babylonian. 
You're not longer going to live at home. You're going to live in the palace. You're no longer going to eat Jew Jewish food. You're going to eat Babyl Babylonian food. And they were deconstructing who they were. And they did that by isolating them from their parents, isolating them from their faith system, isolating them from their culture, and then trying to reprogram them. Wow, does that sound familiar? Satan always wants to make you feel alone. He always wants to make you feel isolated. Do you remember Elijah when he stood on the Mount Carmel and he saw God pour down fire and, and, and eat up the, 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 the sacrifice, lick up the water, all that went on? Remember that? And where do we find him the next week? We find him on a cliff in a cave saying, God, I'm alone. It's just me, God. I've been faithful. I'm a good prophet, man. But I, even I, am all alone. Nobody's here, and Jezebel wants to kill me. God took care of him. God gave him a little something to eat, a little something to drink, said, take a good nap, and then he said, now get up. You are not alone. There are 7,000 of you who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Get back out there. I got stuff for you to do, son. Go! But Satan always, always, always wants us to feel like we're the only one. And i got to tell you, there's a lot of our kids that are leaving for college right now. A lot of our kids. And I'm watching on social media. We had a prayer over a bunch of them at my life group the other night. Some of you come and say, you know, goodbye before you go off to school or whatever. And you're going to go on to a campus that is the modern-day Babylon. Some of you start in school next week. Some of you started last week. Some will start school next week and the week after. And you're going to go to Huff, and you're going to go to, to oh, what's that one down by my house? I, I can't remember the name of the, the big high schools in town. Hopewell. Some of you are going to go to South Lake. Some of you are going to go to some big schools. And you're going to feel like you're the only one there. The only one. Yeah, you say at a Christian school? Yeah, I'm talking about at a Christian school because you know it and I know it. I ran them for 25 years. There's the kids who play the game, and there's the kids who really mean it. And Christian schools are no different. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose. Say, yeah, pastor, you tell those high school kids. You tell those college kids. Yeah, what are you going to do tomorrow when you get the memo in your box that says you got a DEI meeting? And it's going to be on using the correct pronouns, gender identity, and how we're going to recognize Pride Month. Why would we demand more of our kids than we do of ourselves? Why? Are we not called to be Daniels? Are we not called to be Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah? Or do you get a pass when you get a job? If we can't stand, why would we expect our kids to stand? Here's a clue. They won't. They won't. You know what they'll do? Better to assimilate than to be the antagonist. You say, oh, Dan, Dan, you don't know my kid. I do know this, that the research says that 85% of the kids who grow up in evangelical Christian homes walk away from their faith between the age of 18 and 24. That's the numbers. And you know our tendency is? Our tendency is always to immediately go into denial. And to go into denial says, well, well, well. That includes Catholic kids and Mormon kids and, you know, not our kind of kids, though, right? No, it's our kids, too. It's our kids, too. 
And even if you were to be the most generous, you say, well, some of those kids come back, some of those kids come back. Some of them do. About 40% of the 85 will come back at some point, but here's when they're coming back, according to Christian Smith and Notre Dame University. They come back after they have kids. And you know why they come back? Because they want help raising their kids. And the help that they want raising their kids is not so that they'll follow God, but so that they'll be good people. They have morals and values. They don't go to prison. They're hard workers. That's called therapeutic moral, therapeutic moralism or therapeutic moral deism. We believe there's a God, but basically what we want to do is have him help us be good people. Why? So we can assimilate. Why? So we can be successful. Why? So I can get the corner office. Why? So I can have a good income. Why? So my marriage will last. Why? Those are none of the right answers. If you're bringing your kids to church because you don't want them to go to prison, just got to tell you, it's not what it's about. You, you, you miss the message. All right? Hopefully you're bringing your kids not because you don't want them to go to prison, it's because you don't want them to go to hell. That's why you're bringing your kids and teaching them the truth. Last week, last Monday, I went to Nashville where I was sat in a room with a bunch of really amazing leaders, thought leaders, head of discipleship.org, one of the leaders of Open Doors Ministry, formerly a focus on the family for 20 years, the author of about 12 books on family discipleship, the head of Awana International is part of this group, pastors of churches ranging in size from 6 to 20,000. We all sat in this room, 15 of us. And we had to look each other in the eye and say, we are failing to impact the culture with our generation and with the generation to come. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Because if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to get the same results. It's time that the church in America wakes up and realizes this. We've lost our culture. We are now in the minority, and the majority is hostile to us, and yet truth still matters. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to assimilate? Or are we going to be accused of being antagonists? I'm not saying you're going to be antagonistic. I'm just saying you're going to be accused of being an antagonist. Why? For simply saying, this is who I am. This is what I believe, and it matters to me. That's what Daniel, Shadrach, Misha, or Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael said. I'm not trying to be ugly. I know, man, I'd love to have that steak, and that wine looks tasty. I'd like something to let me forget what happened to me last week. But this is who I am. This is what I believe. And respectfully, Let's work out something different. Respectfully, I'm not going to give in. So let's work out a solution. Respectfully, I ain't going to change. These are guys who are making courageous choices. And parents, it's part of our job to help them understand, the next generation understand. You see, the moral relativism of postmodernism has given fruit to where we are today. This deconstructionism, you see it everywhere you look, from our values to what we're willing to accept, what we consider normal, to the deconstruction of our language, where now we can't even figure out whether we're a him or a her. 
And we joke about it because we think it's absurd. And the reason we think it is absurd, because it is absurd. There are two genders. God created them. Male and female created he them. You say, yeah, but you're going to offend somebody. The truth sometimes offends. But don't ask me to lie to assist you in believing something that is categorically untrue. That violates my conscience. And it's intolerant, by the way, of you to make me violate my conscience. But whether or not you agree or like it, I'm not going to violate my conscience. Now, you don't have to be ugly. You say, well, what if they fire you? Now, here's where you hear the sound of screeching rubber as we slam on the brakes many times. Oh, well, let's don't get radical. Let's don't get crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm overthinking this. See, there's all kinds of reasons why those boys could have rationalized this. <laughs> Mom and Dad's not here. Hey, you're only 18 once, right? They already took my manhood. What else do I have to lose? There's a thousand different reasons they could have said right before they dove in to a good old piece of prime rib offered to the moon god. They didn't play those kind of games. But I'll tell you this, Satan will always give you a thousand excuses from yesterday on why you can rationalize compromising and caving before the lies of Satan. He will always do that. Whether it is why you're looking at porn or why you're getting drunk or why you're cheating on your spouse or why you're lying on your taxes, Satan will always give you an arm's length list of reasons why you're the exception. But at some point, our behavior is reflective of our belief, and many times we just don't believe this stuff is true, or that it matters, or that God is real, or that there's appointed unto man a time once to die, and after that, the judgment. So what are we going to do? When words can mean anything, values can be relative. And when values are relative, there is no right from wrong, there is no up from down, and your truth is just as valid as my truth, because there is no real truth. So... I would say to the parents, your child's never going to choose courageously if they spend more time on TikTok than mom and dad talk. They're never going to choose courageously if they're more faithful to their sports team than their local church. They're never going to choose courageously if they have open access to the internet and limited access to conversations with mature adults. They're never going to choose courageously if they spend more time alone in their room than together with your family if they observe failures without forgiveness, if they see examples of addictive behavior from the models in their own home, whether it's because of alcohol or social media or pot or video games or sports or spending, and if they see these models of addictive behavior being played out while being told they need their own discipline in their own lives, what do you think they're going to do? Your kids are never going to choose courageously if they're always served and never served. If they see comfort and conveniences of greater value than sacrifice and selfishness, selflessness. If they think that blending in is nobler than standing firm. If they've never been taught the benefits of living in moderation rather than living in entitlement. And it begins with us. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas. And if we're going to admit it, we've done a really stinking job of it. So what can we learn from these lads? What can we learn from these four boys? Well, number one, someone's got to take a stand. Someone has to take a stand. The first one who spoke up was Daniel. 
ironically, they named the book after me, right? <laughs> but Daniel's the one. Daniel resolved in his heart. Shortly thereafter, he had three buds. But somebody had to be first. And I ask you this. Do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to be number one? To be the first? To walk out on your own? With the very real possibility that no one will follow you. But here's the second point, and I don't want you to miss this. You need to be looking for others of like mind. You need to look for others of like mind. There are others. Satan wants you to think you're all alone. Think, Satan wants you to think that you're going to lose your job, lose your house. You're going to live under a bridge with a sign that says, we'll take uncomfortable stands for food. But that's not what's going to happen. If you would have the courage, others might find the courage. And you got to find yourself. Find out who those people are. Look for them in your dorm. Look for them in your high school. Look for them at work. Find who they are and say, let's go at this together. Let's go at this together. You know what your boss likes at all costs? Speaking of someone who's been in administration at some level for 35 years. I just want some peace sometimes, right? And you might find that your boss actually sympathizes with you, but it doesn't seem like it because nobody ever speaks up. He's getting pressure from upstairs. Maybe he's an Ashpenaz who'll say, you know what? Let's work something out. Maybe he'll give you a wink and an eye and he'll say, I'm one of you. Maybe you'll give him the courage that the next time he's in a meeting where they're talking nonsense, that maybe he say, you know, not everybody's willing to do this. Are we willing to have a lawsuit? Are we willing to have, uh, you know, uh, people that stand up and say no? Are we willing? I mean, do we want that distraction right now when we've got goals to meet? But if we all assimilate, nobody's speaking up. They think there's not a problem, and they're going to keep shoving it right down our throats. I get so tired of people saying, you're shoving your religion down your throat. I can't shove my religion down your throat. Lord knows if I could, I would, but you can't. You can't. But I got to tell you, I get feed fast. Let me try that again. I get fast. One more time. I get forced fed stuff every day that I don't want. Every time I turn on the TV, every time I drive down the street, every time I link into, you know, the internet, there's somebody there trying to force feed their their values down to me. So don't tell me it's offensive when I do it back just by simply saying I ain't going to do it. That was a rant. I'm done. All right. Number three. (laughs) Every once in a while they just pop out. I can't help myself. One of the things we can learn from the lads is that you approach the right person in the right way at the right time. Daniel used wisdom in approaching Ashpenaz. He didn't wait until it was dinner hour. He didn't take it right to the top. He didn't say, I want an appointment with the king. No. He didn't do it publicly. He went privately. He projected humility, he respected authority, he protected his character and his reputation. He didn't tick them off. He didn't present a petition. He didn't carry a banner. It was a delicate dance, but one that I think we can learn from. Daniel went with respect. By the way, you say, well, he probably would have capitulated. No, the record indicates that none of these guys were willing to capitulate because three of them ended up in a furnace and the other ended up in a lion's den eventually. And by the way, you might too. You might lose your job. 
The persecuted church all around the world already understands what we in America are just getting ready to learn, and that is this. If you're a Christian, you don't get it all. If you're living by faith, you're going to pay a price. In China, in Vietnam, in Cuba, in Somalia, in, in Sudan, South Sudan, there are people all over this world who understand that you can't, as a Christian, get it all. You're going to pay a price for it. By the way, the early church understood that because they wouldn't join the guilds. Because to join the guilds, you had to worship Diana and the other false gods. And so they had a subculture, a sub-economy between the Christians and the early church that supported each other because they couldn't get the good jobs that were the guilds, which were the labor unions of their time. So this is nothing new. Why do we think we're special? We're not. This is what we're called to. The Bible said, take up your cross and follow me. But you can still approach the right person the right way at the right time. Number four, make a good faith effort at resolution whenever possible. Anybody can be a rebel and anybody can critique. But the wise man looks for a solution. And this is what Daniel did. This is what Daniel did. So don't walk in and just say, I'm taking my stand, but take, you know, take your stand. But take your stand with a possible solution. Would you mind if? Could I possibly? Is there something else I could do? Can you come up with an option for me? So there are times when you may say, and I experienced that, you know, um, whenever I was growing up and, and my parents had a rule in my house that you didn't miss church for work. Just didn't miss church for work, period, end of discussion. That was their rule. So every job I got till the day I left home, I would go in and I would say, I cannot work. And by the way, this was different <laughs> than it is today. It was a little trickier. I cannot work on Sunday morning, and I cannot work on Sunday night, and I cannot work on Wednesday night because those are our church services. And there were times they say, sorry, man, this can't help you. But there were plenty that would say, and, and uh, by the way, I would always say this, but on the times I can work, nobody will outwork me. I always said that. And you say, well, that's kind of cocky. Okay. But I meant it. <laughs> My dad was the kind of guy who said, you go in 10 minutes early and sweep the, sweep the back room out, and you stay 10 minutes late and sweep it out again. But make sure they know that you were the one that worked extra. That's called the Protestant work ethic, by the way, and it helps. But in, in the end... I always had a job, sometimes two. It worked. It was reasonable. I proved my value, proved my worth. And the jobs that I didn't get, I don't even remember anymore. So you can do it. Make a good faith effort at resolution. Then number five, ask God to bless your actions with opportunities. And this is something I, I didn't notice until I was studying this week. But it was interesting. In the midst of all of this, during that ten days, what do we find out about Daniel and Hananiah and, and uh, Michelle and Azariah? Well, God gave him learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and understanding and visions and dreams and good health and improved, improved uh, look. All these things are going on. So while they were taking their stand, God was honoring it and blessing it and giving them fresh opportunities. And the bottom line is this. When you take a stand for God, be aware and ask God, will you bless me with additional opportunities? It may be to witness to somebody. It may be to show people that, that hey, you know what? For the negative that you may feel I bring, I bring 12 positives. Take a look at those. Use your stand. Be kind. Be gracious. Be forgiving. Be reasonable. And God will use those moments and opportunity. You don't have to stand up to your professor and say, well, you're an infidel. And you're no, 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 you don't do that. He talked to me and said, you know, i got to tell you, I'm seeing this subject a little bit different than you. Hey, maybe sometime we could talk about it while I clean your classroom. Or maybe I can help you grade some, you know, grade some papers sometime, you know, for, for your freshman class. And, and, and I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Those kind of conversations are possible. 
And then the last thing is this, be prepared to accept unfavorable consequences regardless. In the end, you may be denied, you may be punished, you may even be sacrificed. We're not guaranteed immunity. Sometimes God allows us to suffer loss or future gain. 11 out of 12 of the disciples experienced that. They all lost their lives. But the problem is today that Christian families today seem to focus on being passive products of the culture that are bent on fitting in, assimilating. And we've lost our desire to be distinctive disciples of Christ. What does that mean? That means standing out. So our choice is standing, in, uh, standing out or assimilating. We want our kids to feel popular, to be free from bullying, to be accepted, to blend in, not to be singled out, to be promoted, to be highlighted. And when that requires conformity to Babylonian values and practices and habits and speech and identity, many times we'll say, okay, okay. And we're growing a bunch of spiritual wet noodles who have never learned to take a stand. So what happens when they go off to college? They're absolutely ripe for the picking. If you want your kid to be prom queen or prom king at their public or charter school or even the Christian school, make sure they fit in. Make sure they go to all the parties. If you want them to get a Division I scholarship, make sure that sports are more important than church attendance. I said it out loud, didn't I? If you want them to go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, then they better be in line with the social justice movement, or at the very least, they need to keep their opinions to themselves. Hopefully it's their opinions, it may not be. And here's the reality, and this is very important to note. You cannot disciple your kids by proxy. The family can't be the church because Christianity is a communal faith. You need the church, but the church and the family are two separate institutions. And the church can't be the family because the church only gets a very tiny fraction, less than one hour a week by average of evangelical homes. And so if that is the case, what is happening is we're giving our kids enough to inoculate them against the truth that's what you do when you give a vaccine. You give them a little dose. Then they're resistant. A lot of our kids know just enough about the Bible that they're willing to reject it, but they don't know the Bible well enough to be absolutely stunned by its truth. And why is that? Because we think that the church can teach that one week and, and on Sunday nights if they go to big life, and hopefully in kid life. Or maybe even we send them to a Christian school or buy them a back of books so that they get a Christian curriculum, a Christian education. But I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work. How do we know that? Because 85% of them are leaving. And yet 70% of people who are adult Christians accepted Christ as minors. But 89% of those who leave their faith eventually had a weak faith experience in their home. What does that mean? It means their mom and dad took them to church, but they did not take ownership of the family discipleship. So let me give some advice for parents very quickly. Number one, make use of the early years strategically. Your child's character is largely formed by the time they're seven. Make use of the early years strategically. It's so important. Number two, teach the whys behind the expectations. Teach the whys behind the expectations. You can't say to your kid, you shouldn't have a TikTok account and walk away from that. You're not having a TikTok account if I catch one on you. First of all, kids are a lot smarter than their parents when it comes to technology. They'll have a TikTok account, you just won't know about it. But you need to explain why TikTok is dangerous and it's not because the Chinese may get your information. All right? There may be a little part of it, but that's not it, the whole thing. Do you realize that our kids' brains literally are showing physical evidence of the addiction 
that TikTok causes and Insta and Snap and all the other things that are going on. Literally, they're grooves in brains. But I will tell you this, if you're checking your Facebook status every 20 minutes, every two minutes, your kids are going to look at you and say, yeah, right. How do you know that? Because they tell me that. They literally tell me that. Yeah, my mom's always trying to nag me, but my goodness, my dad's always telling me this, but he's on PS all the time, you know. So that means that we're going to have to act like grown Again, why are we demanding so much of our kids when we're not willing to do it? We're, kids, you got to take a stand. But i got to be late for my, my diversity, equity, and inclusion thing, and I'm going to sit on the front row. You know. We're not leading by example. Number three, purposefully prepare them for the inevitable challenges ahead. And if you're going to do that, that means a lot of conversations. Take your kids on trips. Do not, that's, that's not a youth pastor's job. That's not a pastor's job. It's not a Christian school teacher's job. That's not, that's not a coach's job. And Lord knows it's not technology's job. It's mom and dad's job. Number four, be mindful of the power of tribe and help your child to learn to choose wisely. Your kids are looking for a tribe. You want to know the number one tribe right now, by the way, in high schools is? It's gender-confused tribe. Ask your kids how many kids they know who think they're bi. Ask them. You're going to be shocked. You say, oh, well, that's just the unsaved kids. Oh, no, 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 no. Ask them. See, for, for, in, in my age, it was getting a perm. That was how we rebelled, all right? <laughs> Staying alive, all right? It's the 70s. And eventually, it became the other things, getting an earring, getting a tattoo, cutting yourself, uh, colored hair, you know, emo, I worked in high school. I watched them come and I watched them go. Well, today, the cool thing is to question whether or not you're a guy or a girl or to whom you're sexually attracted. And now we've got kids that are altering their life physiologically and they're going to wake up in a few years and the suicide rate's going to go up. But you know what we're doing? We're confusing the definitions now. Why? Because there is a Babylonian mentality that says you change the definitions. Words don't matter. Truth doesn't matter. It's all relative. It's postmodernism. It's a philosophy. And if you don't take your time to educate that, you're just going to think, that's hey, just not a fad. It's far more dangerous than the fad. Fads come and go. But definitions are important. And then finally, instruct your children on how to engage with authority in a principled way. You teach your little kids good touch, bad touch, why don't we teach our kids lies and truths? That might be a good thing, too. There's a joke internally. Two things. You can always tell when Dan's done preaching because he closes his Bible and holds it up. He's got three minutes to close. That's one of the jokes. The other joke is I never get all my points done. So they'll ask me later on, how many children did you leave by the side of the road? That's what I call my missing points. <laughs> so I have some that I'm going to come back to at some point in the future, maybe on a podcast. But there are four areas that you got to get a hold of in your family's life or you're going to lose your kids, four areas. We're going to talk about them. The research shows it. The Bible shows it. We know it. We just got to focus on it. But here's my challenge to you. For two weeks, I've tried to drive this point home. Let us be resolved. Let us be willing to take a stand. And I want to say to every kid in this room, if you're 7 years old or 17 years old, or you're going to college for the first time, or you're going on a around-the-world missions trip, you can make a difference. You can take a stand. You can do what's right. 
You can do it respectfully. You may pay a price for it. You may never get prom king. You may never be the most popular captain of the cheerleading squad. You may, you may have all kinds of things going on, but high school's not forever. College is not forever, but eternity is. And I dare you to be a Daniel. I dare you to choose courageously. And some of you are, and I'm so proud of you. I want you to know that. And parents, Look for these kids and let them become part of your tribe. Let them get encouraged. You know, I was standing down here this morning. I just was getting choked up because the guy standing right here, Micah, he's a member of my life group. He's, his dad's an elder. His mom's faithful in our Bible study. But this guy is standing right here. He's, he's on a gap year. He leaves on Saturday to go around the world on a missions trip. He's raised the money for it. He's going, and Claire Barrett's going as well, who's another elder's kid. And they're going to spend a year just serving Jesus and, 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 and serving others. The kid that was standing right here, Zane, I was able to hang out with Zane a little bit. The guy here, good-looking, tall guy, he, he looks like he's 27, but he's, he's a junior. And you know what he told me this week? This is so cool. And I have his permission to do this. I don't do this unless I have permission. He told me this. He said, I had to, to get rid of some of my, my uh, social media accounts. And I said, well, why, dude? Uh, and he said, because for something happened, he goes, and I promise you it's not because I was visiting certain kinds of websites, but I started getting all these ads, and it was showing little girls dressed very provocatively, and, and they were coming, and, and, and they kept coming, and I, I didn't want that stuff. I don't, want that, I don't need that temptation in my life, so I just deleted all of my accounts, and, 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 and I'm not going to have that in my life. And, and we say, he said, how, how do I get, how did that happen? And I said, you don't have to go anymore. When they find out, the algorithms find out that you're a 15-year-old boy, it's going to come to you. They're designed to do that. They're running tests and they show that if they find out you're a teenage boy, the porn invitations are going to flood into your box. Why? Because Babylon has an agenda to steal your kids away from the truth. But there are young men and there are young women and there are old men and there are old women who are standing resolutely and they are going to say, I am resolved. I will not defy myself defile myself. I am resolved. I will take a stand. And we in the church ought to gather around and lift it up and pray for each other. But we also ought to be willing, collectively and individually, to stand up to the king and say, I will not assimilate.